What if I told you that you could help solve the hospitality recruitment crisis with just £10? You'd say, shut up, take my money, wouldn't you? Well, that's exactly what a new initiative called Hospitality Rising is going to do. Between now and May the 12th, we are raising £5 million to fund the biggest hospitality recruitment advertising campaign that the UK and beyond has ever seen. We want to double the amount of people who would consider working in hospitality. Think army, be the best, but for hospitality. All we need from you is £10 per employee that you have in your business and together we can stop this recruitment crisis forever. Go to hospitalityrising.org now to find out how you can help today and don't forget to tell your HR team and your CEO. Supersonic! 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 Supersonic. Supersonic. From Supersonic Inc., this is the Mark McSee Supersonic Marketing Podcast. The rocket fuel podcast for food, drink and hospitality businesses everywhere. Listen up, tell all your friends and share with your colleagues. Every single episode is packed full of tips, tricks and advice on how you can make your brand boom. Hello, it's Adam here from Storekit. We're the easy mobile ordering system for ambitious operators. We love Mark so much that for podcast listeners, we've got a very special deal. If you head to storekit.com forward slash demo and quote supersonic in the form, you can get £50 donated to a hospitality charity of your choice. All you need to do is complete the demo and be a real business. So if you're experiencing trouble finding staff, if you want to boost premium orders, or if you just want to manage an outdoor area with the easiest possible system you can find, head to Storkit right now and check it out. A creative agency for the hospitality sector, Saved by Robots create compelling brands and memorable experiences through great design and engaging storytelling. From Scottish Restaurant of the Year Sugar Boat to Tip Jar, the digital tipping platform that's taken over the world, Saved by Robots excel at bringing ideas to life. As well as developing new concepts and refreshing existing brands, the robots provide outsourced graphic design to help multi-site operators grow with confidence. Check out their work and get in touch at savedbyrobots.com. So we've got a bit of a marketing special today. And what's so exciting about this is it's actually someone that I've been working with over the last few months on my project, Hospitality Rising, where we're trying to raise £5 million to run an Army Be The Best style campaign for hospitality. Matt Waxman, who is my next guest, has just been instrumental in that. So Matt is a brand strategist, has done great work for many brands across the years, but most notably for the Army and actually running the best campaigns that the army has had over the last 10 years. So brand strategy is something in hospitality and retail that we don't tend to do as much as some of the bigger brands out there. A lot of the time it's all about getting stuff done and getting campaigns out and nothing more than that. And that's fine, but wouldn't it be nice to just understand how great brands execute great strategies? So I wanted to talk to Matt today to really help give you a gift of some information of what a strategist does, how a strategist goes about their business, 
but also I was super keen to really hear from the experience he had with some of the great brands across the years and also how he collected all of the awards that he's gained in his work and for his work and deservedly so across the years. So here's Matt and I really, really hope you enjoy this as much as I did. So it gives me the most world-class strategy hero pleasure ever to introduce the incredible, talented, award-winning superhero of Hospitality Rising and much more. It is the man that says this is belonging and also is the hero of the recruitment side of the army campaigns that you'll know and love from the past few years. It is Mr. Matt Waxman. Hello. Uh, I'll take that as an intro. It gives me great <laughs> pleasure to have that as an intro. <laughs> Excellent. So, yeah, very, very happy to chat with you today. Yeah, no, it's great. Well, it's Friday afternoon, so we should be uh, in sort of pub mode or down in tools mode or something like that. But I think we're both saying both super busy and probably could be doing with another couple of days on this week, but never yeah, mind. This this week's been very busy. And then I I wish I was going to the pub. I've sort of made the mistake of having a group of people over for dinner tonight, half of which have got unique dietary requirements. Okay. So maybe maybe I'll just say, you know what, let's just go to the pub. <laughs> or hey, do your own <laughs> do your own delivery or do just you, eat. Yeah. Or put a microwave in the middle of the table and touch it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, after this week, I'm not sure I've got the energy. Yeah. Or, is it like super extreme stuff or just... No, because, you know, everyone's different. Someone's vegan. Someone's gluten intolerant. Yeah. Which your listeners will be very well equipped at coping with, but yeah. I'm not the best cook at the best of times. <laughs> well, I think the microwave, well, the microwave in the middle of the table sounds a bit seedy, you know, it sounds like some kind of 70s <laughs> swingers party or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but anyway, let's see what happens. Right, okay, so um, Friday, we're getting to the end of January as well, so I think we're uh, we're all feeling sort of buoyed by that, which is good news. It hasn't felt like too much of a drag, hopefully. But, um, but yeah, so today... You know, it's a marketing podcast, and uh, weirdly, I don't have that many marketing people on it. You know, it's sort of more hospitality people, and they, they sort of dip in and dip out. So I thought a pure sort of marketing one would be a really good idea. And I think also for hospitality, what tends to happen is we don't afford ourselves or can afford the sort of bigger thinking that the bigger agencies and the bigger brands get. So what we tend to do is maybe don't do as much strategy but we do an awful lot of promotion, you know, one of the P's only, and we end up doing a lot of execution. And, you know, back in the day, you know, I was described as a promotions jockey, um, you know, and because it was very much, it was just all uh, execution and, and very little strategy. So I was really keen to sort of talk about that. But if we go back a bit then, what's sort of brought you here? Because in terms of you and your education and things like that, your background, it wasn't the natural thing to kind of go and do was it or were you going to university thinking that this was what you wanted to do no i mean i um i didn't study advertising or marketing or anything really to do with business i studied um uh french and italian language and literature so for me back when i was um studying kind of i i guess that the career aspect of it wasn't so front of mind for me it was that was just what I wanted to, what I wanted to get my head into. There were stories I wanted to read. And I guess like books that I had read in translation that I thought 
I've got to read these in the original. Mm. I need to learn for certainly for Italian. So I need to learn the language. And I just, I've always been a real bookworm, I guess. Yeah. Was um, there examples of that then? What, what were some of the titles that inspired you to want to read the original text? Yeah, well, the reason why um, I did French and Italian was I'd read um, a translation of um, the first book of um, of uh, Dante's, um, uh, well, I read Inferno, which is mm. the first got Inferno, then you've got Purgatorio, and then you've got Paradiso. So I'd read Inferno, which, I mean, I would say is probably the best of the three anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I'd read that, and um, I felt like I really wanted to read um, that in the original Italian. Um, and I'd never done um, Italian before, but I found a course where I could learn it from scratch along with another language. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, yeah, that's kind of, that's sort of what made me choose that. But I'd always loved languages and, you know, you, I knew that if you did languages, you could get that amazing year abroad and all that. Oh, stuff. yeah. Nice yeah. idea. Yeah. I mean, that took me, <laughs> I had um, lovely, amazing um, six months in Paris, six months in Milan. Oh, God. In, yeah, incredible doing really strange jobs um <laughs> i was sort of working in i was working in ad sales for sort of like free magazine in in paris which was sort of like quite weird you know one of those magazines which not really sure if it properly exists but i was young yeah. and it was, um, <laughs> and then, um and then in italy i worked in this translation consultancy which was helping businesses open up businesses in Italy and I spent all of my time translating a business plan for a Japanese company that wanted to import noodles into Italy and oh. just think this is they've got spaghetti yeah, well, yeah like, I was just thinking that, yeah. <laughs> <That's>, uh, <laughs> those Italian noodles uh yeah <laughs> and, and you know in Italy anyway they don't like them really passionate about their own national food and their mm. own national cuisine so even at the best of times it was kind of never going to work um but it was it was, <laughs> it was pretty funny but um so yeah that's and i just uh, milan has got to be one of the most fun cities in the world especially um nightlife which has kind of always been a, a massive part of um what i do on the side yeah but the clubbing in milan i think is kind of the best clubbing in the world the um you go to these clubs and What's amazing is you go to these clubs and you've got the 18-year-olds turning up on their little mopeds mm-hmm. and then you've got the 70-year-olds dressed to the nines sitting around a table and you've got everyone in between yeah. and the whole city is out to party. And there's none of that. You know, in the UK, when you go clubbing a lot, it's, you, you get a real sense of who should be out, who shouldn't be out, yeah. and it's sad for this person to be out. And you just think that's that's rubbish. Like the best thing in the world is when a whole city comes out to party mm-hmm. and that is that's what happens in Milan. So. Yeah. I mean, the only thing I've experienced like that would, would be, you know, I'm, I'm down in Brighton would, would be something like pride, you know, then there's no judgment about who's out, what's happening, anything like that. But yeah, you're right. I mean, now me going to a nightclub, I mean, I got tickets for Fatboy Slim at Christmas Amazing. and I actually sort of bowed out because I was like, it, it starts at like 11 or 12. He's not on till whatever. And I was like, I'm 45, man. Like, you know, I'm just going to be this old guy in the corner, you know? Yeah, but it shouldn't be like that. No, no, it shouldn't. So, I don't know. I think in in this country we have a... It's interesting, though, what you say about pride, because I think especially in 
um, gay bars or queer bars or queer spaces in sort of like the more new LGBT nightlife spaces. It's it's always been age wise, yeah, um, a bit more mixed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I guess like that community as a whole keeps going out longer. But yeah. it's a very, I think it's a very British thing. These sort of boundaries. It's randomly at some point you're meant to stop enjoying going out. Yeah friends and listening to music and well just that that spiritually like quite quite a good thing to say because um I, I just read in the newspaper locally here there's a, a a local legend who opened a lot of the gay clubs here you know and it's and the headline was like uh so and so uh finally sort of you know leaves these nightclubs and is going to do something different and i was thinking oh that's good you know i thought of a wee read that you know and i was thinking there'll be 56 or whatever it is 82 or something he was and yeah, it's like he's yeah. going to go and do something different. It's like he's going to go and do what? You know, it's like yeah. so many people have packed it in by then. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. <laughs> I was out in um, in Dalston, a really cool uh, bar called The Glory, and there's um, there's an amazing DJ, and she was DJing Princess Julia. She's called, and she must be in her fifties or sixties now, mm-hmm. and has been doing it for decades. She's an icon. She's a legend. Yeah, and um, and it should it should be like that. So much more interesting. Mm-hmm. When you get a mix of people in nightlife spaces, there's nothing more boring, I think, than walking into a club and everyone looking the same. You can just kind of think at that point, well, this is not going to be an interesting no, one. No, not diverse and not inclusive. So, yeah, 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 definitely. And what about Oxford? You were Oxford, right? Yeah, so I was at Oxford, um, which I, I loved. Mm. I mean, as I say, for me, um, doing literature there, working, um, you know, I got to learn from some amazing professors that were you know writing the books on the subjects that um i was reading and um and i kind of liked the whole you know the really old school beautiful architecture side of it um and the pressure that i can't, i've always quite liked pressure yeah. um, and you have to churn out a huge amount of work all the time um which i quite enjoyed i think if i don't have a bit of that pressure I'm probably like one of those people that without a bit of external pressure um, I can kind of just not really do it. Mm. Uh, so yeah, I, I like that. And then I also, that's kind of where I started doing a lot more of the nightlife stuff as well. So I ran club nights when I was at uni with friends. I did, um, when I was at Oxford, because Oxford by and large, I would, perhaps this is unfair, perhaps it's not. A lot of people that go there, they don't really want the social side of the university, which is, you know, totally fair enough they're very academically focused it's about the work it's about the library and that's pretty much it which means for the people that really do also want to have the social side of university um the clubbing and the nightlife becomes really important but there isn't as much of a offering um as in other places so i i started a night with um with some friends which was uh, 80s and 90s and noughties night um called supermarket and um, it was it was kind of great fun. It was it wasn't really a gay night, but it was sort of ish, like on the you know yeah. on, on the edges of it. And um, and was it eighties, nineties, noughties, cheese, guilty pleasures, or indie, or pop, or a mix? It, it I would say it wasn't really guilty pleasures, or at least it pretended not to be guilty yeah. pleasures. Um, we had some really good DJs in the mix. I mean, I. I'm a really bad 
DJ. Okay. <laughs> I can't, I can't, you can't mix. beat much and things like that. I can't beat much. Yeah. I can't mix. And I would say I definitely veer into cheese because mm. I don't see a problem with guilty pleasures. And I guess I kind of like, especially like a lot of the really sugary eighties kind of stuff. So I would often find, well, I stopped DJing at my own nights early on because I realized I was clearing the dance floor. <laughs> <laughs> Stick you on at the end of the night. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, in Decatur, I was running this thing with yeah. a lot of friends and I would, you know, find that I'd been given the graveyard slot at my own night. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there were, I, I just loved, I loved bringing everyone together. We used to, um, you know, just like sitting on the door and bring people in and seeing everyone have a laugh and, and, going too hard on the smoke machines and just it was the most fun way to make money was people to have a great time and that was actually what got me into weirdly got me into the whole advertising and marketing thing because we used to do these fun campaigns to promote the nights and used to the 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 flyers and the posters were really cool were you like fly uh, fly posting with a balaclava on and uh, a bucket of paste um, kind of (laughs) We always we used to make a thing where every you know every club night we'd pick a different um, supermarket icon. So they were kind of people from pop culture, but sort of people you wouldn't expect, and they're very like bright colours and um, little subversive. And people started kind of collecting them and having them in their room, and it just got a bit of a a thing about it. And I really liked the whole making the posters and the flyers and. I guess without knowing what I was doing at the time, building it into a bit of a brand. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I started thought, you know, I started helping out with, I had a lot of friends who were in, it has a big theater scene there and they said, Oh, you know, can you help us market our shows and do our poster? And, you know, so slowly it just sort of naturally happened. Um, and, and at the sharp end. Yeah. 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 That's, that's yeah. really cool. That's really cool. And then, so, so that kind of moved down. It was a nice segue because that's what I was going to talk about next was just getting into agency then. So what was your sort of fledgling agency jobs then? How, how did all that kind of come about? Well, I, re- I mean, I had no idea what, now my job as a planner, I had no idea what planning was then. And I think that's, it, it, planning is this, or strategy, we can kind of come on to what is the difference in this area difference, but it's kind of a secret job. Mm. I feel like when, especially graduates are getting into it, they don't really know that it exists. Maybe that's not a bad thing because it means they actually have to cut their teeth on things like doing account management and stuff like that. But so I just thought I want to get into an ad agency. I didn't really know what went on. didn't really know about the difference of roles. Um, But I sort of did, did the rounds of some, was really taking examples of the kind of marketing that I've been doing at university. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the end, there was a scheme, like a bigger, more formal scheme. And then there was a startup content agency. Um, and I went for the startup content agency, just so I thought I'd be in, in the mix of it all. Um, and that was great. I did that for two years. And it was in this agency, it was called Chameleon. And in the gra- in the basement floor of Chameleon, there was this tiny, even tinier startup called Gleam, mm. where they were talking about these YouTube influencers, which at the time was like very, very new. And there were all of these up and coming people like Zoella, Zoella? Be popping, yeah. popping into the popping into the office, and like Jim Chapman, all that, just like at the very. So I like witnessed the explosion 
Um, what sort of years was this, Matt? Was this 2018, 2017? No, no, this was back in, uh, this was in 2013, yeah. 12, 2013, something like that. Yeah. So all in its infancy. And that was um, really exciting. And then very quickly, that was just like a rocket ship that took off. And so we were all in the content space and that was interesting, but I was basically a bit of account managing, but every, you know, like in a startup, you just do everything. Yeah. But there was a, uh, one of the founders there was a, was a planner by discipline and I worked very closely with him. And there was another account person there who said, you know, you're really um, a planner. And I was like, okay, I don't really know what that means, but sure. <laughs> um, and then he put me in touch. He said, you should, um, you know, you should probably now look at some bigger agencies with a planning department where you can go and learn that craft. And then I found myself at um, Karma and spent, um, yeah, like six and a half years there, which is where I did a lot of the work, which um, uh, is kind of the, the work that I've sort of built my reputation and case studies and things like that off, I guess, which we'll, which we'll come on to. But that's how, that's kind of how I got, got in the industry. Yeah. Well, Kamarama, uh, so disco, were you there in the disco tunnel years? Disco tunnel, golden lava. <laughs> Ski lodge. Ski lodge. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, remember. <laughs> amazing. An amazing place, an amazing culture. Mm-hmm. You know, I think um, people are quite dismissive now. It's become quite trendy to be dismissive about agency culture and things like that. But mm. you know, I just, you know, I was sold the moment I walked in the door and just felt like this incredible creative space. And I don't think you can underestimate how an environment can impact the work that you do, especially when the work that you produce is ideas. Was it always uh, in that corner office, uh, like on in Farringdon? Was it always in that building? When, when I joined, it was there, but no, before then, I believe it was in West London. Was it? Yeah, yeah. And so what was it about the culture though? I mean, I know you've said the place and the creative space and what about the people thing? Like how did they make people feel good and you know because a lot of agencies there is politics it is difficult there's difficult conversations creatives like having punch-ups whatever like what what was different do you think yeah i think there was definitely a bit of that i think it comes down to the to leadership doesn't Ooh. it um leadership and the brands in the building you know when you've got great brands in the building Ooh. and you've got leadership with a clear point of view on the kind of work they want to make and at that point it was still you know, very much like coming out of building challenger brands and stuff like that and just working on um, Costa Coffee and then on the army. There were just, there were good people, good leadership and a real kind of spirit that it's, you know, all about the work basically. And did you work with Kevin? And did you work with Kevin Hides at Costa? I did, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah I a good friend, yeah. Kevin. Good friend of the show. Yeah, on um, a lot of Costa international work. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, it was a... Uh, I think we we did a few bits for. In fact, we had a couple of meetings with Karma Rama about Costa when I had my mm. old agency. So I don't. I would have remembered seeing you, but um, yeah, we were in the room with a few. And it was quite funny because the Karma Rama team were a bit sniffy, but as they were going, "Who's this lot?" You know. <laughs> but we were we were doing uh, local marketing toolkits and things like that for them, which we had to translate into all these languages, and that was crazy. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure it wouldn't have been me, Binks. No, 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 no. I would absolutely would have remember. Been firm friends. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. No, it was a, a lady creative director that was just a bit put out, I think, by, by another agency being brought in. She wasn't sure why, I don't think. Um, but oh, that's cool. And then, so, so going back to strategy, then, you know, as I say, in hospitality, I don't think it's for the want of trying. I think that it's just the way it's kind of happened that we tend to have quite a lot of um, 
sort of internal talent that just goes up mm-hmm. through hospitality. So they don't get the exposure to working on other brands or big brands and then coming in. And we don't seem to be great at attracting the best talent around the world that's maybe worked in finance or whatever, you know, like the big e-com brands to come in and then say, this is how you do things. So there's a bit of a knowledge gap there, you know? So I've been kind of imploring people to do, you know, like Mark Ritson's mini MBAs and things like that to just see how Unilever would do it or, you know, Louis Vuitton would do it or whatever. But in terms of that, it'd be really good to just understand, you know, strategist, planner, the process, how that all kind of fits in together. I think it'd be really helpful for the listeners to hear that. Cool. Well, um, maybe I'll talk. I mean, I do um, every every year I do a couple of lectures at, um, at King's on their Stratcoms course. And we spend a bit of time talking about like what actually is planning and strategy mm. and then like a, a basic framework, which I, I tend to, to recommend, which is by no means new. In fact, it's decades old, but I come back to it and I think it's really useful. So I think the, um, I guess it's interesting to think about the, the, the sort of history of planning. So planning as a discipline kind of emerged out of, um, you always had consumer insight departments, research departments, but in many ways they weren't really listened to on the top table. And I, when looking back at where sort of planning comes from, I think part of why planning was formed as a discipline separate to uh, account management, separate to research and separate to creative was to try and give um, a, a voice of, of insight at the table that was a more integrated part of the process. Mm-hmm. So it was finding people that could step outside of research, think a little bit more um, creatively um, and sort of uh, sort of have a stronger voice. So to give the customer a stronger voice um, at the table. And the, the framework that I use is one of the original f- planning frameworks actually back from um, JWT. And it just asks a few questions. And these questions are, and you might laugh and say they're really simple. But the first question is, where are we now? So you look at the situation that you're in and say, okay, what what is the current situation we're in? Then the second question you have to ask is, why are we there? Why are we in this situation? Third question is, where could we be? Then you ask, how could we get there? Mm -hmm. And then you ask, how will we know when we're there? And then you just continue to go around that circle. And I think it's a really helpful set of questions because I think especially when people are starting to think about strategy and planning it can get so overwhelming am I thinking about media strategy or am I thinking about creative strategy and don't I need to write this proposition or strategy line that you know sounds really snappy and is sort of fetishized into this thing that I've got to you know I'm going to put in front of a creative and suddenly it's going to spark a million ideas mm. so I think it's always helpful just to take a step back and just sit down and try and answer or write an answer to those key questions. Mm. And if you can write a solid answer to those key questions, that's the foundation of a brief and that's the foundation um, of a strategy. So that's kind of always um, where I begin. And I think the value of, of a planner and sort of why planning exists is the capacity to ask those questions internally and to client and make sure 
that the answers to those questions are right mm. um, and bought into before you begin the process. Because if you, if you start, you know, take that first question, where are we now? If you start from on a brief and you haven't really analysed where you are and why you're there and what the problem is, mm. you could come up with the best idea. You could come up with the most exciting route to solve a problem. But if the problem that you're solving isn't the right problem, then it's just a waste of everyone's time and money. Mm. So it's about asking those questions a discipline that's created basically to ask the right questions and be listened to. I think it's amazing what you've said because I come across it so much where there's little respect for doing things properly and digging the foundations. And, you know, if you were painting a wall, for example, you know, you'd put the duct tape round about it or, you know, the frog tape or whatever, and then you would, you know, cut in and do it right. But what most clients that I see, they just want to attack the wall and paint from the middle out. And mm. it's it's craziness. And, and I see it with a brand DNA. It's actually the mark of if I want to work with someone. So I've got a brand DNA process that I use. And it's, you know, not the same questions at all, but, you know, they are as simplistic. And when someone wants to shortcut that or fag packet that to get to something else, you know, they're just wanting to the execution. They just want the answer. It's rush, rush, rush. It's almost like trying to get a kid to do their homework. You know, you've got to say, will you sit down and just, you know, do this properly, you know? But everyone's in a rush. They want to shortcut it and they don't have the patience for planning. But actually, you know, if you take something like Sony Balls, right? The planning was how long? It's not like mm. someone crazy, like 18 months. And then, you know, and then obviously doing the ads easy you know when you've got the answer um so yeah I, I think you're right there's not enough respect but i think it helps with your education and also the way that you carry yourself that you know it is about having that gravitas to be able to say to people i've got this i know it's simple but please do it and i promise the the answer's going to be great um but it's difficult i remember i got laughed out of an agency a while ago um, not too far from our office and in, in marketplace where we were. And, you know, I was talking about things like the four Ps and they were just dismissing it. You know, they mm -hmm. were just saying, that's old hat. And it was like, no, it still works. Your cotler's still right, you know? Oh, but our industry is obsessed with anything new. Yeah, yeah. Obsessed to the point where you just, that's why I quite like, you know, there's many planning frameworks that I could use for these lecture series and stuff like that. But I like using an original planning framework mm. because I think if you find something that has stood the test of time, then it's, you know, it, it means that it's got a huge amount of, um, of value in and yes, lots of things change, but also lots of things don't change. Mm. Um, and I, you know, one of the things that you often do as a planner is you're, when you get a client problem in front of you, you'll be looking at, um, case studies and you know things that you know, other people that have solved those problems and something that's often fun to do is not to look at recent examples but to look at really old examples yeah you know whether where the problem is um where the problem is similar because those um you know the the major things about how human beings interact the major things that they that they worry about and make them tick and the things that can change their beliefs and behaviors and things like that they don't they don't really change mm. 
So in terms of that then, so in terms of that kind of linear process, cause it's good to kind of go through it. The first step is usually some kind of research. Yeah. And I'd use research in, in, yeah. So I guess the, the first stage is, is research, trying to define, um, trying to define the problem. Where is a client? So why are they there? I think one of the things that is really annoying for clients um, and it also wastes a load of time is the assumption that they don't have the right information to begin with. Mm. So one of the things that I always try and do is to go through everything that they have got and see where, see where the gaps are. Because generally, I think, especially now, with so many different data and information sources, clients probably have a lot of what you're looking for. It's not that they have a lack of data information, but there's a lack of, um, there's, you know, lack of really good summaries or the right things that have been pulled out or things like that. So generally I try and spend a lot of time going through what they've already done because, mm. you know, the, if work's already done and I can use it and leverage it, then, then that's great. And it saves time. Um, and it saves money. The other thing that saves a lot of money, which I'm surprised it isn't always, isn't always done, um, is doing some really good stakeholder interviews with people in and around their business outside of the marketing team. You know, especially people, you know, if, if it's a business where there's, you know, a, a sales team and there's people that have been on the, sa- on the sales frontline for a really long time. Anecdotally, they will be able to tell you the things that make customers tick and you know be able to give you some some sort of anecdotal hunches that you can go on so i often try and do that and just to sort of get to know a business inside out and then inputs can come from anywhere you could be looking at past case studies or case studies from the category or different categories books there's you know i think our industry is very good at publishing some really interesting books every single year with great perspectives and new ideas um, so you can do some of that. And then just, especially when you have the benefit of, um, living in, you know, fortunate enough to live in a city that is full of exhibitions, museums, you know, if it's relevant, going to getting out of the office, going to different places where you can take on different bits of stimulus. Mm. Um, and then there's some other sort of little tricks and things that I, over the years that I've, I've come to enjoy doing like, you know, a few contacts who are clinical psychologists that I'll often hit up with a problem Um, and just different flavors, different flavors and inputs that you can bring in to try and work out, um, you know, what you can, what you can do, because ultimately for, for, for the brief, when you, when you've isolated the problem and, and what you've got to do, the creative, the creative brief, the creative side of the brief is, your suggestion of what it is that is going to make the audience tick, what it is that's really going to grip them, Mm. engage them. And then how can you make the brand that you're working for the protagonist Mm -hmm. in that story? When you think about it in those broad sense, you know, you should be bringing in art, you should be bringing literature, psychology, culture in its very broadest sense. And I think the, the worst thing that you can do to try and, Right, a brief is just sit at your desk and Google because your <laughs> output is just not going to be interesting. It's so interesting with what you say though about the 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 stimulus, you know, in terms of the arts and things. So uh, when I was back at lastminute.com, um, it was great. We did an innovation sort of group and Brent, who started lastminute.com with Martha, um, 
he used to get us to do that. So we'd go to the Apple store, we'd go to Hamley's, we'd go to a museum, we'd go to, and it was, you were going in with certain problems in your mind that you were trying to solve, but it would just like going to Hamley's and going in with that viewpoint of how does that work or what does that fit together or what about this or it was just brilliant or going to the cinema whatever it was it was it really I can't stress that enough and actually you've tapped into that in me because I don't do it enough and I should mm. definitely do it more and go and like I always think like go and watch people yes do the yeah. structured focus group see the whites of their eyes but also you know whatever it may be within the category that you're in go and watch people in the environment where they're in and around the products or the services that they're buying yeah. and be a bit of a creep. I mean, I think the best, <laughs> I think the best planners as well are always in some ways, maybe this is conjecture, but I, a, a lot of the planners that, and in the planning departments that I've been in, everyone in some way has been a little bit of an outsider mm -hmm. in their own way. They've been the kind of person that for one reason or another has been slightly on the outside of their circle or their group watching people. And they're the kind of people that will be much happier going to a restaurant with a friend, not talking to the friend and listening to the table next to them. Yeah. And I think having channeling a little bit of that into brief, really watching and looking at people mm. Um, you can't, you can't beat it. Yeah, I think, it, yeah, it's what Ritson says uh, in the NBA. You know, and he talks about it, and he says, you know, if you, you know, if you want to really understand, but it was a quote from someone else, think. But if you really want to understand animals, you know, don't go to the zoo. Mm. You know, go to the natural habitat. So, yeah, it's, it's such a great point, you know, to be able to go out and do that. You know, well, I don't think I would have got to where I got to on the army strategy without doing a lot of that. Mm. Um, you know, that was all, all of the insight that really cracked that campaign came from spending time on base and spending time with soldiers um, and just watching, listening. So talk about that then. So, I mean, great, great segue. It's as if you've done this before. Um, so, <laughs> so um, yeah, I mean, obviously one of the proudest things I assume, you know, you've, you've been involved with and mm -hmm. it's what brought us together, you know, in, in terms of, of working on Hospitality Rising. Yeah. So, uh, you know, such a great campaign, so well remembered, most successful in the last 10 years, you know, really kicked up a stink as well. You know, it was mm -hmm. quite challenging for a lot mm -hmm. of people, um, maybe some old gammons were not very happy with it. Um, but, you know, from that perspective, you know, it'd be really good to to go through that because it's such a great piece of work. And then another one I'd like to load in as well, just when you're talking through is how do you know you're right? Mm, that is, well, that is just the question, isn't it? And I would say also that um, I, I would probably describe myself as a planner that is constantly doubting whether or not they're going on the right answer. And that used to cripple, like that used to, really cripple me and it would I would it would make it really difficult for me to feel confident in what I was doing mm. um, but then I've read a lot um, about you know people talking about how actually having a lot of doubt is a really good thing because you can sort of feel confident that you've really investigated um, and you're constantly reassessing whether or not you're right and operating from a place of doubt um, I actually think for for planners and strategists is, is, is a really good thing because you will always be questioned and you deserve to be questioned. You know, mm. when you, when you put a brief in front of 
creatives in front of the rest of the team that is setting the direction, you know, of potentially the next six months or a year's worth of work. And not only do they have to create ideas off that space and leave behind other spaces that they may create ideas off, the whole of the rest of the team has to get behind it, sell it. Sell. So you you should be challenged on it. It's only right that you should be challenged on it. But if you're someone who doubts yourself a lot, what's really useful is you've already given yourself hell over the questions that people are bringing up because, you know, you, you've been thinking a lot about whether it's kind of kind of right or wrong. So sometimes you do like, have a massive gut instinct that you think, I just, I just know this is the right way to go. But that's, that's pretty rare. um but yeah but to come back to the army so um uh sometimes you get briefs where you think i know this audience or you know this is close to me and you know really couldn't have been further from from my um you know from my life or, or my experiences you know a single person um in the army um, I didn't particularly have strong views on the army one way or another. I know like, a, a, you know, a lot of people or a lot of young people and I was, you know, a, a younger person at the time of, of, of doing it, certainly my, that, um, you know, we'd have like really negative views. I didn't, I just didn't really have an opinion, but I also didn't really have any connection. Um, and so what was interesting was that they had a big challenge that for the lot, you know, the, the amount of people applying, um, interested in applying and applying had just been going down year and year and year. Um, and they had you know, some basic functional factors, like because the army was much smaller than it had been, you know, back in the 80s, you were just much less likely to know someone from the army. When you think about what jobs you want to do growing up, it's generally a job of someone that you know, whether it's a parent or a friend or you know a family member that you really look up to or admire. So the fact that nobody really knew people in the army meant almost like a snowball. Fewer people wanted to apply because they didn't have that kind of inspiration. And then there are other things which, you know, in a way, you know, not in a way, which are good, which is more people going to university more people having more options and you know there were a lot of people that traditionally had joined the army for one of a you know for, for one of other options and so people had more people had more choices and they didn't necessarily have that family inspiration of joining the army so there were all these factors um, at play that basically meant that in order to grow applicants they had to talk to people who had choices and had to had to choose to join the army and want to join the army. But these were also people who weren't coming from a place where they knew very much about it. So I thought well, my my job has got to be to find out what what is it about the army that could make someone who doesn't really know anything about it and could go and do other things. What what could be the thing um, that would make them think, well, that's a, that's a really interesting choice mm. um, of a career, like something that I, that's actively interesting, unique, different to, to my other options um, on the table. And the other thing was that I found was there are some people that always just want to join the army anyway, yeah. because it's just in them, you know, they've, they, you know, they've, they do have family member in it, or they've just, you know, for some people is their calling. Yeah. And the other thing I thought was, 
we need to stop talking to them um, in the ads so much because they're going to join anyway. They're not joining because of advertising. Yeah. They're joining because they actually want to be in the army. Mm. And sometimes it's really useful to remember what a weak force advertising really is. Mm-hmm. Um, just to ground yourself um, because it was a waste of time really fine-tuning the ads to talk to people who were joining because of, because of the army. So it was really, I wanted to talk to, we wanted to talk to those people that were that were on, on the fence, potentially open, but by no means that interested in it. So I just spent a lot of time um, on, on base and with soldiers. And one of the things that we did, which I think was quite critical, was we got soldiers in friendship pairs to talk to us. Mm-hmm. So people that were friends with each other, we'd talk to them in pairs and we'd sort of get the conversation going about you know, really broad open questions. You know, what's it like? What's basic training been like? Um, what did you expect? What didn't you expect? Not really very leading questions, but then just getting that conversation going mm-hmm. um, and being able to watch them interact and talk with each other um, rather than answering these in a way, because, you know, job and career is personal, answering these quite personal questions, these random people from from ad agencies. Uh, And very quickly, one of the things that really wasn't a answer to a question, but a behaviour that we were seeing was the strong bonds Mm. that people had and the support that they would show one another and slowly we were able to start to ask more questions around that and bring that into the conversation and what was really interesting was that that wasn't necessarily something that they had expected but it was a benefit which was now sort of one of the most important things so we started to ask questions you know around you know what's um what's what's the thing that you didn't know about joining the army but is kind of now the most important thing to you and you get stuff back like um, family, you know, friendship. You'd even be regularly people would say, you know, love, which was, and you'd hear some amazing stories about the the support that they'd quickly given to each other. And then, so it's like, okay, well, there's something about these strong bonds to go on. Then it went back to some other um, references read serve to lead which is the sort of the officer's handbook but it's very interesting because in there it taught you start to understand that um, why bo- these strong bonds are so essential in the army and actually the whole army can't function without them it doesn't yeah. function as an organization without strong bonds it just simply doesn't work um, and then started to understand that actually everything that is everything that is so um, transformational about the army also comes back to those strong bonds. The fact that you're able to travel the world, yeah, it sounds amazing, but actually if you didn't have those strong bonds, it would be quite lonely. Mm. Um, and it would be, especially at the start and, it, it, you know, and um, quite disorientating, but because you're, you're doing all of that travel with people that you've formed strong bonds with, it's, you know, it's, um, it's something that is uh, very motivating. And then things like um, the, the training that you go through, the fact that you're able to grow um, in your training to such an extent is not down to just you as an individual trying really hard. Mm. It's the fact that you've got all of those strong bonds that are supporting each other, that are encouraging each other um, to get to that level. So it really felt like there's something in it and it felt something that is very unique 
to that career and way of life. There isn't, I felt like if I was to, so weird, isn't it? Is the army, it's not a product, but um, as a advertising planner, you, you, you have to think about things in a way, sometimes like a product you think, okay, what's the, you know, what's the, um, what's this distinctive thing about this product that I can play on that, you know, other, that other products don't have. And it felt like those strong bonds mm. uh, were at the heart of it, which then became um, what we called in the brief, um, the sense of belonging. And so that, you know, that formed the brief. So the brief was all about um, the, I'm trying to, the, the, I think a proposition on the brief, on the first brief that we put in, which actually my old, um, my old boss sent to me the other day. He said, I found this in the drawer. It was the original um, brief. And it was um, belong to something bigger than you. So that was the, that was the original brief. Uh-huh. And then the first piece of work was this is belonging. And it was single, single-minded focusing in on the fact that there is no career that has a sense of belonging like the army. And I guess the, you're very conscious um, especially with a career like the army that you you have to find something that is going to motivate people but you also have to find something that is authentic yeah. um, and I felt that that you know there's a lot of criticism and we'll get on to the criticism about the net campaigns the following campaigns obviously but I felt that the balance was right there because I felt that there are many things that you can say about the army but one thing that is very true um, is the strong bonds and that that is something that makes the army an amazing place to be if that's what you want yeah and then what came out the back of that then so that happened that was the that was the effectiveness award-winning campaign yeah so the first year was um, was ads that just sort of brought to life that feeling of belonging. Mm-hmm. And then the second year we said, okay, let's build let's build on that. Um, let's let's now break down the fact that a lot of people think that there's only one type of person who belongs. So let's break that down because that's a big barrier for a lot of people. So that and then the second year um, we told the stories um, of people in the army who might have thought that they wouldn't belong. But in fact, and again, because of those strong bonds that are so much bigger and deeper than the differences, um, create that sort of more inclusive sense of belonging. So that is where, you know, we did, uh, I think one of the ads had a Muslim soldier pausing on exercise to pray, which was the one that really, really, really got the backs up of daily mail and stuff like that. Um, and yeah, I remember, I think the Daily Mail headline on that, when that work broke was now the army wants soldiers to cry, be gay or be Muslim. Um, that was the headline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you can still look it up. That was the Daily Mail headline. Then you had Nick Griffin saying, you know, the, pers- the, the, the person behind this campaign should be sent to a lunatic asylum, you know, ridiculed in, um, you know, or it was all armies going soft, blah, blah, blah. And how, how did you feel about that? Um, uh, that was my first time, I think, where I thought, um, that was the first time where I'd done something that was so in that, that got such a strong public, it got such a strong media backlash. Mm. Um, and I thought, 
oh, maybe we played this, maybe this, maybe we played this wrong. Um, but the audience that we're talking to and the results kind of very quickly spoke for themselves. Right. Um, and what was really good, and I, I think this is what I would counsel anyone doing something which they know is going to be culturally provocative to do, is that we were prepped and ready to go with what we'd done and why we'd done it. So when army spokespeople were invited on to the one show or you know programs and to talk about the campaign, they were ready to talk about, well, you know, actually the ad that we made about that soldier who paused on exercise we made with the army imam, yes, the army imam exists. And, you know, they were there ready to use that backlash as an opportunity to tell a deeper story of the army, which, um, you know, 30 seconds of advertising doesn't afford you. And that's the real benefit, I think, Mm -hmm. of getting... Um, getting a conversation going in culture gives you, if you're ready, the opportunity to be part of that conversation in a way that media budget will never allow you mm. in in advertising. And so that was a very um, that was a very powerful uh, that was a very powerful lesson, um, and it worked. And then each year, then we weren't afraid. I think we weren't afraid. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we knew that what we were doing resonated with people that were applying. We could see um, that we were striking a chord um, with potent- with applicants and the you know, completed applications were coming in. And slowly over about two or three years, the media narrative shifted from, you know, soft ad agency, soft army, don't know what they're doing, mm. to things like surprisingly effective ad campaign, to eventually starting to have a bit more of an open mind to what we were doing and understanding that the figures, um, you know, that the, the, the figures backed it up and that um, this was something that, you know, was, was making a real impact. So then the IP effectiveness work was, I think that was after the, maybe after the second or the third year, we could tell that, um, we could tell that, that story. And definitely I think that was a really proud moment because, um, there were many, many, many times um, on that um, leading that um, leading that work where I really doubted myself, yeah. um, and you know was really worried that um, that it would you know ultimately it's taxpayers' money. You know, if it doesn't mm-hmm. work, we're wasting everyone's money, mm-hmm. and um, and I really, really wanted it to work, and um, you know it was really difficult difficult issues lots to just kind of play right and and get it right and i'm sure at points we got lots of it wrong as well but overall knowing that it worked and that the job that we were set to do um you know was 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 achieved um you know in in certain respects was you know really really gratifying especially after you know lots of sleepless nights of you know, have we got this all wrong? I bet. Yeah, I'd have been in bits. So I'm, I'm, I'm more sensitive, big sod sometimes. So yeah, I'd, I'd be, yeah, I'd, I'd be shutting down. And then just you know, going through your achievements as well. I mean, they're speaking for themselves, right? So, drum uh, champion of change, a couple of IPA effectiveness, one for Costa, one for British Army, DMA Grand Prix, uh, Think Box, best small budget, highly commended. I mean, yeah, you got to be pleased with that, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's nice to, to hear them reeled off. 
Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, I, yeah. I think often I'm never really that satisfied. I can. I don't know. I think I. I often look look at things and think mm, could have been a bit better here. Could yeah. have been a bit better. There. But I think by and large, um, I think the campaigns that I'm really I'm most proud of are always the ones where there are really strong results, so the effectiveness results, but also the ones where um, they strike an emotional chord mm. with the audience and they, in some small way, in some small advertising way, um, start a conversation, make people think, um, emotionally engage them. Yeah. Because I guess this goes back to the start, like what, I, what I've always loved is um, literature and stories and ideas and that's what really uh, makes me. That's what really makes me tick. And so, being able to being able to tell a story that captures people in some way mm-hmm. and delivers the results, um, I'm always really, I'm always most proud when you can kind of get bring those two together. Well, and also I think you know you're a great champion of changes as Drum Magazine you know sort of recognised. So you know a couple of articles from you lately, and I, I chimed in on LinkedIn on a couple of them as well, you know, so you were speaking out about the rise of anti-Semitism and you're also speaking out about, you know, the, you know, in, 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 incredible abuse that, um, you know, LGBTQ plus, you know, um, people have, you know, just been out and about and living their daily life. So be really good to just kind of touch on that because I guess you're using your own experience but then, and, and life's and all that, but also on top of that, you're using, you know, your your ad box to be able mm. to, you know, affect some change there as well. So you're really helping a lot of people. So it'd be good to know about that. Yeah, I think, um, well, I guess in some ways it goes back to that, like, outsider's point. Um, not to some, you know, great extent, but um, being, you know, I was, I was out at my school at 15, very much, you know, the, you know, the only gay, at a really young age, probably too young, um, not really equipped to deal with that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and also being a Jew in a Christian school at the same time and not having, you know, be, not, not really having space where, um, you know, either, either one or the other was truly comfortable, you know? Mm-hmm. So um, I think there was always that, you know, I was very acutely aware and often called on to, without invitation, to answer questions um, on one or the other. And that, you know, in some ways that really pissed me off. But in other ways, I think, you know, when you are, you know, I think especially when you're out at a really young age and you're the only one, you don't, you basically don't have a choice, mm-hmm. but to become in some sort of uh, way in, in, uh, you know, in, in inverted commas, political, because you're not just a kid, you are now like, you know, the um, you're now representing in some way. Yeah. Um, and not in the most hostile, but at points, you know, a somewhat um, hostile uh, environment. So without wanting to particularly, you just want to be a kid and you want to be, you know, dating, whatever, doing all the things that 15, 16, 17, 18 year old kids do, but suddenly you're um, an advocate yeah. in some way. And then that you just start doing it. Um, and so then I think that's just always something then that I've kind of taken with me 
um, and something that I've tried to, um, whether it's like campaigns um, or whether it's, you know, like kind of voluntary work that I would do outside of um, advertising. Mm-hmm. It's really important. It's really important to me because I guess it's always, always been a part of, of my life. Um, and then anti-Semitism, just particularly recently. I mean, I wrote this piece, which I think is the one you're referring to. Yep. You know, I was just kind of like in, a, you know, in a rage. You know, I think it's. I think I have a really interesting. I enjoy a really interesting perspective, being like a vocal LGBT person, having written for Gay Times, being very involved in, you know, in in that side of our social justice consciousness mm-hmm. and being very aware of the players that are very loud and vocal in that space as a gay guy. And then also as a Jew thinking why in like in a year where we've had the most record breaking antisemitism in the UK, in Europe, in the U S you know, it was a Holocaust Memorial day yesterday, yes, the night a mile up the road from me to like elderly Jewish people beaten up outside the school like there's no no one i just because i'm very like involved in this space where people are very vocal about social justice i'm so aware of the deafening silence and the fact that it seems like nobody seems to give a shit Mm. so i was really angry when i wrote that piece um because it was hanukkah at the time and in the week run up to hanukkah there'd been a group of kids had gone to central London to see the menorah, uh, which is, you know, uh, like a, um, a kind of a, a Jewish, like big candle thing that you, that you light in at, at Hanukkah. Um, and they'd gone there to sing some songs and have a nice time. And they were like rounded up and abused and uh, round up onto bus. And just like the, there's a video there, the most horrendous abuse that they faced. That was in London. That was like in in the city that I grew up in, in the city where you should like, be absolutely free to, to, you know, be whoever you want to be, but to, to face that kind of abuse. And then in Brooklyn, in New York, there were kids being beaten up all over Europe this last year. Synagogues have been desecrated. There was another menorah um, two miles down the road in Belsize Park, which was desecrated. And I was like, what the hell is going on? And why is everybody who is usually so loud, mm. so silent? Mm. And I remember I came into the office and I was just in absolute rage. Mm. And I sat down and wrote this article and I shared it with some people internally. I was like, I just, I really want to talk about this. And they were amazing. And I think Ogilvy have been, um, you know, I haven't been there that long. I've been there six, six, seven months, but they've been incredibly supportive about, you know, things that have nothing to do really with my day job, yeah. but wherever they kind of support helping me get that, get that out there. And, you know, I had some great responses and I had a lot of responses from other people who felt like me, but felt like they couldn't speak up. And I just think we're in this strange, strange situation where um, at a time where anti-Semitism is at its most terrifying Jews are being at best subconsciously, at worst manipulatively removed from the conversation. Mm-hmm. And it's terrifying. Yeah. You know, I saw, I saw last night. Um, I, I just, I actually, I, I just can't, I can't wrap my head around it. Yeah. That Islington council 
invited Jeremy Corbyn to speak at their Holocaust memorial event, whatever your views on him, if someone is suspended for anti-Semitism, to make them your speaker at your Holocaust memorial, I mean, I just can't imagine how anyone would consider being so insulting mm. to a community. I mean, it just must mean they didn't even art. I don't know. Didn't anyway, even think about it. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, it, oh, yeah, it just it, it's we're in a we're in a really scary situation at the moment, mm. and it's not being taken seriously enough. I, I fundamentally, I'm just baffled. Anytime I hear it, I just, I mean, racism in general, obviously, but I'm just baffled by it. I don't get it. I don't, I don't get what this is about. You know, it's, it's crazy, but yeah, I think it's just a, a call out to everyone listening. You know, if you see anything and you can help support this not happening, I mean, just get involved, but I'll, I'll put links in the podcast notes to, you know, what you wrote and, and also, um, the Stonewall campaign as well, which I think was wonderful. So, you know, so people can get a bit more educated on it and, and just make sure we're all vigilant, you know, but I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm struggling. Well, we're pulling to that thread. Um, not a bar mitzvah, but uh, a butt mitzvah. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, uh, let's talk about that club night because uh, that just sounds mega fun. Um, and you had some celebs coming too. So tell, tell us about that. So um, yeah, outside of... Um, I guess outside of advertising, but, you know, in some ways, again, you know, the, the role of planner, the role of, you know, advertising is to be culturally on the pulse and kind of engaged and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I just have, you know, as I mentioned, I'd always done club nights at uni and then I've got some, got some friends that are far more um, talented than I that, you know, run amazing club nights in London now and are actually good DJs and the rest of it. <laughs> um, and, and one of these friends, um, God, it must be, four or five years ago, we were, we were chatting, also a gay Jewish guy, about in some ways how we don't really have a space where those that sort of intersection of identity feels very much at home. Um, and we were talking about bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs, so the actual celebration that you have when you're 13. And we were laughing about how, you know, unknowingly camp they are. Like they're, you know, the, the I suppose like... The, the, the I've, never, I've never thought of it that before. <laughs> it's so, like it's so like the whole thing is so camp. It's like sequins and you know the yeah. the big family photo that's always just like so. The whole thing is is very camp, I think. <laughs> um, and we were laughing about it. We said, you know, what if we did like a, a bar mitzvah themed gay night? We we're like, well, you know, we we're like, no, one, surely no one will go. And then we had a mate called. Um, uh, called Colin, who runs a really cool club called The Glory in Dalston. Mm. And um, we got a bit of a gang together and we said, let's, should we just, let's just put it on as, let's just sort of put it on as a joke, basically. And we called it Butt Mitzvah, uh, B-U-T-T Mitzvah. And we put it on as an all-inclusive LGBTQ club night. There'll be Jewish music, there'll be Jewish culture, um, but also there'll just be, you know, DJs and like good times and you can be anyone or anything and come down. Um, and we sort of did it as half as a club night, half as a cabaret show where we all sort of played characters of this sort of weirdly dysfunctional Jewish family that like were acting out their daughters, Batman. It was all a bit weird. Um, and then we opened the door and there were queues down the street. Wow. And 
I think because of the name, and this does come back to advertising, the which I think is one of the most forgotten things, which is the power of humor. Mm. Having a really funny joke just goes a long way. <laughs> and it writes itself as a headline. So Time Out and I think Vice came to the first one because they knew that you write a headline with bat mitzvah in, you get clicks. So this is something they want to cover. So the first night got a huge amount of coverage. I found, you know, I was saw my face as front page of advice <laughs> for a week. Like, bat mitzvah, the talk was hilarious. And then um, we, it was so, got such demand that we moved to Bethnal Green Working Men's Club, which was another amazing venue Great and venue. pretty funny venue. And um, we had uh, that was that started to get a bit bigger, sort of six hundreds. So on, then we took it. You know, it just sort of snowballed. Nowness did a documentary about it. It all just started to go a bit crazy. Um, and then the big thing then we, we took it to some people came. We put it on in the vaults one year, and some people came from America, and they were like, "You got to do. You got to. You got to take it international. <laughs> Bring it to New York." So then. 10 of us got on a plane to Brooklyn for Halloween just before the pandemic. And we put it on in what's it called dollar bill bar in um, Brooklyn. I might be getting that wrong. Mm -hmm. And we had, we did it in conjunction with a whole bunch of um, like Jewish scene drag Queens over there. And they all came down and we did it as a big joint, but mitzvah. And it was, we, we'd sold no tickets on the way over there and we were terrified um, but someone said, don't worry, because in you, everyone just like buys their tickets really late. And in truth, that was what happened. And it was like a, it was a big sellout in the end, partly with, we I think the day before we went and we got Time Out New York in print and we were there as a Halloween pick. Oh, wow. But thank God. For that. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, now it's snowboard. Now we do um, at Oval Space which is like a big sort of warehousey kind of club mm. in East London. And it's, you know, it's very mixed now. I'd say you get just a whole mix of people. It's kind of got a bit of a reputation as just a very different kind of night. So yeah. you get a mix. But yeah, at the last one, we had Sir Ian McKellen come down, Amazing. which which was um, very special. And did you get what, to spend time with him? Um, I Well, one of the things that we do, because like all good Jewish events, you can't leave your guests hungry. Mm. So um, in the queues, we hand out, um, we hand out bagels. So I, nice. gave, I, I handed him a bagel, and then um, I really enjoyed watching him uh, do the Macarena. <laughs> Is there footage of this anywhere? You know what? There might be footage, but I just be honourable. Um, Send it to Graham Norton the next time he's um, on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's been really special. And actually, um, throughout the whole rise of anti-Semitism and stuff like that, what's been really nice is for the organisers, it's become more than just a club night that we put on. There's about 10 of us that do it. It's actually become, you know, we've become a really tight-knit group of friends. Yeah. And it's become like a really special um, space for, for all of us. So it's been a... It's weirdly now like one of the most important things in my life. It's amazing because we had a pre-call and you were like, you've got to put in a bit, but that's why, you know, so I was like, I didn't find that. Yeah, I didn't find that on your, uh, you know. Your I know, but I think, I think this is the <laughs> first time I've allowed it to creep into my professional persona. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's wicked. It's great. It's great. Right, listen, I'm going to need to let you go soon as well because it's, it's Friday night and, and, you know, you need to get your microwave uh, sorted out yeah. <laughs> to move it from the kitchen. So there was a couple of things I was just going to talk to you about was... Um, 
just how, how what we're doing. Um, so on hospitality rising, I mean, there's so many parallels from mm. the army campaign, and it's so funny. I was talking to Kate Nichols uh, just before the pandemic, and we had a little kind of tete a tete over. Uh, it was quite fancy. We went to the Savoy for lunch. It was some kind of working group thing. And uh, and we said those exact words to each other. We need to get a campaign. I think it was more about chefs at the time. And we both agreed. I don't know who said it. It was one of us. But, you know, the best ideas, you know, is, is you know, it's got many fathers and mothers or whatever. But we spoke about it and that was our takeout was, I went to Leeds straight after that and in my head, had this from Kate saying, we need to do an army, be the best. But for hospitality, and then I went to Leeds, came back, and it was pandemic lockdown, so that was it. So it was all kind of shelved, and then it all kind of came up again. So I guess it was just um, anything you wanted to, you know, sort of share in terms of the the process that you've been through, um, mm. getting hospitality rising to the the strategy that we've got, um, and then obviously we're going to kick on from there, and hopefully, I think we're about. 35% of the way there to the bottom rung of the ladder of being able to do something. So, yeah, we're, we're definitely getting there. But, yeah, it would be good to, to see if you get any quick insights about that and, and what you went through. Well, I think um, the great thing about about this brief is, as, as you say, it can draw on experience of campaigns that I know have worked in this space um, before. But I think um, the thing that, is always at the heart of a campaign that works, as I kind of mentioned before, is when you can really draw on that emotional connection. Mm. And I think that is where we've got to with the strategy and with the work for this campaign is that we've got something that is authentic and true, but turns up in a way that feels very engaging for the audience that we're talking to. And we're not talking to the people that have said, I would never work in hospitality because we're not going to convert those people, at least not in the short term. Mm -hmm. We need to talk to those people now that have options that could come and work in hospitality, but could also go and work in a fulfillment center or in a supermarket or in a whole host of other places. And we need to find something about hospitality that makes it feel like something that they want to do, like something that's a choice and something that the best positions that you can take are ones that deposition the competition. And I think that's where we've got to with the work is something that depositions the competition. And through spending time um, with people that have just started working in hospitality and doing that kind of research, um, I think we've got to, a really good place where we kind of crack that insight, which feels obvious, but I think we're delivering in a really true way, which is, you know, young people have been forced out of engaging activities, connections, fun for the last two years, and they're tired and they're bored of being bored. Mm -hmm. You have then this amazing industry where you can say a lot of negative things about it, and people do, but the one thing you can't say about hospitality is that it's boring and that it is it is so, that is the common thread between everyone I spoke to and in the researcher, I thought, right, we're really on something here. I think one person said, I could, I used to work in a supermarket and I would rather do a nine hour shift behind the bar than a two hour shift in a supermarket because I can tell you that a nine hour shift behind the bar will go much quicker. Mm. And it taps into something that is 
a psychological development point of the audience that they're at the point where they want connections, fun, engagement, excitement, something different. And it taps into an inherent truth about the job that you're offering. And so I think that insight that we're kicking off and how we're then able to form that into a really aspirational way of talking about the different jobs in hospitality is what will really cut through um, and attract people um, to work in it. So I think there's that. And then you know, all of the extra stuff, you know, the great thing about where, where I'm working now, uh, being able to work with the likes of Rory Sutherland and all the behavioral science team at Ogilvy and bringing all of that um, into the mix means that there's like an emotion. I think we've got to a place where we've got an emotional heart to the campaign, but there's also some real smarts that we're building in yeah. throughout. So I think if um, if we can get enough people behind this campaign, I think we stand a chance of really getting young people to look at um, hospitality in a light that is very, very aspirational and exciting, especially now. Yeah. No, I'm I'm so excited for it and. Yeah, I just hope we can we can get the fundraising going. You know, we're we're getting there. We're doing really well. But uh, yeah, just uh, it's just the twelfth of May is that deadline. And as I say, I'm actually in, in New York then, so I'll either be celebrating or commiserating if we if we don't manage to make it. You know. Well, I think that's the other thing about the fundraising is it's not you know it's not people giving money; it's people investing. Mm-hmm. Because if we can if we can if we can do this and we can position hospitality as a career, the way that it deserves to be positioned, then every year the recruitment costs will start to come down because we won't be trying to get people in that aren't thinking about hospitality or have dismissed it because that's the most expensive moment to be recruiting. It becomes cheaper and easier to recruit if people actually want to work in your industry. Yeah. No, I I just, I think it's, Long needed. I mean, we saw some questionnaire stuff came back just there, and one person wrote, um, "I've been basically saying this for thirty years. I've been wanting this to happen for thirty years, and you know, now at last, there's an answer." Um, so it is just getting it out to more people and, and convincing more people that long term is the right thing to do. But it's hard. I understand. You know, so many people are in short term mode at the moment, and obviously they're coming out the back of the, one of the worst things that's ever happened. So. Um, pretty tricky so the last couple of things then if we uh, do a bit of fun towards the end then yeah. so uh, we'll talk about um, mark out of 10 uh, which is just um, a bit of a segment to have a bit of fun so what do you think is the best city to eat in um, I would probably say I would probably say Tel Aviv for me best city to eat in that is so spooky. I had a guest on this week, which is going to go out near your episode, and they said the same thing. And I was it, like, really? The food there is incredible now. And you know what? It really wasn't 15 mm. years ago. It really wasn't. Um, but the, I mean, I guess the combination of influences and then also produce and some just incredible chefs yeah. um, and a real, you know, it's a real scene. Nice. Well, I, I, now I'm kind of, want to go <laughs> you know go and check it out and what about uh, your best restaurant you got a favorite restaurant i do um it's uh it's kind of a funny uh it's kind of a funny one uh you ever heard of a restaurant called oslo court i don't think so no back in the 20s when they built those kind of big apartment blocks mm-hmm. they all had in london they all had these um very formal restaurants on the ground floor mm-hmm. um and this i guess is um 
one of the last remaining from there. It's a bit, it's kind of got a cult following. It's a bit like Faulty Towers. <laughs> everyone there, all of the, all, all, everyone there is in tuxedos. Mm-hmm. All of the people who eat there are in their 80s and 90s. And the menu is things like duck a l'orange and like you know, beef wellington and stuff like that. But um, there's just there, pink tablecloths, Melba toast, you know, it, it's like you step back into the 70s, um, but it's, um, there's just something about it. But for me, it's special because um, it's a place where I always uh, used to go uh, with one grandfather and I still go with them, with family. So. And where is it? It's in St. John's Wood. Okay. Right. In fact, I think, um, if I'm not wrong, Matt Lucas, when he did his Desert Island Discs, mm-hmm. You know, when they ask you, like, what's your secret item, your luxury item to take with you? Uh-huh. At, at Oslo Court, they have a dessert trolley that is wheeled round by a real character called Neil. And Matt Lucas's luxury item was Neil from the dessert trolley <laughs> at Oslo Court. <laughs> I'll put a link to that as well. That'll be amazing. I yeah. highly recommend people to eat at Oslo Court. Actually, the, the food is it's very traditional. But it's very reasonable and um, it's just a laugh. Like, there's Every year or so, there's a sort of slightly sarky Guardian article about it, but yeah. sort of ultimately says they went and had a great time. <laughs> nice. Um, and then what about best dish meal? What's your go-to favourite thing? Um, I would say, uh, I mean, it probably has to be the Veal Holstein at Oslo Court. Okay. Which is like uh, very beaten... Uh, very thin breaded veal with anchovies and a fried egg on top. Nice. That sounds cool. Yeah, very, <laughs> very 70s. <laughs> very 70s. I know. Yeah, I yeah, I wish I could come up with something a bit more cool, but um it's it's comfort. Well it's it's kind of one of those things that it's so uncool, it's cool. You know, like you you'll be like, you know, you're you're the most hipster of people. And it, and, and you drink alcohol, yeah? I do, yeah. Right. So best alcoholic yeah. drink? I really like a very, very briny vodka martini. Very good. I like that answer. So, yeah, dirty martini? Yeah. Very yeah. good. And where, where? Is there anywhere that you recommend for a good one? I recently went to a cocktail bar um, called Three Sheets, mm-hmm. um, which is sort of near Shoreditch. And I'm, at, I'm generally I don't get cocktails that much, um, but it was just phenomenal. You know when... You know, when it's, I don't know how they do it, but it's just so smooth and there's just, it's, it's just perfectly done. Super cold, super dry. Yeah, yeah, that's what just, you need. Yeah. I have a friend um, who used to uh, be my business partner and he would say to the person behind the bar and, you know, it was a bit sort of uh, arrogant of him, but he'd say, I want the vermouth to look at the glass and nothing else. You know, so it was like, yeah. it, so basically yeah. what, what he's looking for is the, the, the general the vodka to be in the freezer and then you're you're yeah atomizing the the vermouth you know it is and i mean literally in, in the true sense of the word where you're just spraying the glass maximum and then um, you're in oh yeah oh you've made me really want one now um so yeah i've got the little drinks trolley behind me so could maybe uh, knock one up um so there we go okay so last thing then was um yeah who who would you be taking out for, you know, a special meal or anything like that? Who would you like? Dead or alive? Celeb um, or someone you know? 
Well, I think it's cheesy, but um, I probably have to take my boyfriend because we live in different countries and this pandemic has oh, meant no. we have a huge amount of failed flights and failed visits between us, but um, it's been e starting to get easier to see each other. But oh, um, I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's right. a nightmare. Um, so we've just, it's, um, he's actually uh, in the UK at the moment. So we're getting to spend some makeup for lost time. Good. Um, but yeah, Good. I definitely taking him at the moment no that's that's important brilliant okay well listen i'll love you and leave you thank you so much for being on the podcast it's been great and you know you're absolutely one of the most favorite people i've met in the last while and i love working with you and Me and uh, and you know sort of intellectualizing with you and, and all that and learning from you so thank you for everything that you do for us and um yeah i wish you a great weekend a great 2022 and obviously a great meal tonight with the the, the dinger dinners of the microwave. <laughs> well, thank you. It's a, a real privilege to be on here and uh, it's wonderful working with you. Thank you. Cheers. So there we go. Incredible fun with Matt Waxman. I really hope that you enjoyed that. I was just in awe. He's became a real rock star to me and I love being in his company. I love the way that he thinks. I love the way that he communicates and the way that he's able to package up really massive thoughts into something that is just so tangible and understandable. Thanks so much for your time today, Matt. It was a real pleasure, and I can't wait to catch up with you soon. Thanks so much to you all for listening. I can see the numbers going up, so that's very, very pleasing. Thanks to everyone that gets in touch, and thanks to everyone as well who's telling their friends and their colleagues and their family about the podcast. We're having some real great feedback and lots of conversation and communications from new listeners. Huge thanks as ever to Gaz and Gabby for helping me put this together. It wouldn't be the same without you. Thank you so much. So this is me, Mark McSee, signing off. Bless you. Thanks for listening. And as ever, I really hope that this episode has given you some great value, some great insight, great information, and gives you the confidence to go out and execute like mad to help your brand boom. <laughs>